Our scripture passage comes from Exodus. That's the second book in your Old Testament. And we are going to be reading verses 1 through 12. So if you are willing and you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad place, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Why should you trust God? Uh, Many people have decided that the God of the Bible is not trustworthy. Uh, Sometimes it's because they look at the people of God and they think, well, if I can't trust them, why should I trust the God that they supposedly worship? Or sometimes it's because they withhold trust from God because He's supposed to be the God of this universe. He's supposed to be the CEO of this world. But in light of all the rampant suffering and widespread injustice, he should be fired or at least recalled. But sometimes it's personal, and trusting God is difficult. Trusting God and what's going to happen with your children in the future. Trusting God in the long seasons of loneliness in our lives. Trusting God in the pain that doesn't seem to go away. And trusting God when the 
when the edges of our mind are always being clouded with depression or melancholy? Why should you trust God? Well, in our passage this morning, in chapter 3 of Exodus, we begin a new section in the book in chapter 3. Chapters 1 and 2 consist of nearly 400 years, and now the narrative of Exodus slows down to a, to a very, very slow pace. We know from the end of chapter 2 that God has heard the cries of his people, and God is going to act. He's going to be faithful to his promises, and he's going to rescue his people out from Egypt. And chapters 3 and 4 tell us how God is going to do this plan of redemption and rescue. Particularly in our passage this morning, God reveals himself to Moses, commissions him, calls Moses, confronts to tell, tells him to confront Pharaoh, rescue Israel. But in these chapters, in chapter 3, it doesn't tell us so much about Moses as it tells us about God. Throughout these chapters, God gives Moses and all of us a reason upon reason to trust him. Reason to trust him amidst suffering and obstacles. Reason to trust him enough for our salvation. Reason to trust him to go wherever he might call us to go and wherever he sends. So why should you trust God? Well, our passage this morning gives us three reasons. First, we should trust God for he is holy. We should trust God because he is holy. Look at verse 1. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Uh, it must have been like any other Tuesday for Moses. I mean, it's been one of 2,000. It's been 2,000 Tuesdays for Moses now because between chapter 2 and 3, 40 years have passed. Moses is now 80 years old. No longer is Moses a young man who could kill a man with his hands. No longer is Moses, that brave man that could defend these women at the well from these bullies. No longer is Moses that wealthy man who had that Egyptian portfolio. Rather, what is he? A mere shepherd and not even of his own flock. It's Jethro's flock, meaning he has not much that is even his own. He's doing menial work that would have been detestable to an Egyptian, tending sheep on the far side of this mountain called Horeb, or what we would know as Mount Sinai, another name for Mount Sinai. But Moses is doing what he will be doing later in Exodus. He's leading a flock that doesn't belong to him in the wilderness to Sinai. And on this day, God calls Moses. Moses sees an unusual sight in verse 2, this bush burning and burning with fire, but never being burnt up. And it piques Moses' interest. Now, some commentators will say, oh, well, it's these, like, blossoms of this bush, that, of acacia bush in the desert that blooms. And it, if you look at it, the right light it looks like it's on fire. 
But such an explanation is completely unnecessary because it's clearly an unusual and supernatural phenomenon. And all of it expresses the holiness of God. Even before God tells Moses who he is, he's going to show Moses who he is. You see in verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now, who is this angel of the Lord? The short answer is, it's that it's the Lord himself. It is God. The angel of the Lord is not Michael, is not Gabriel. Rather, this, angelic rep- is, this is an angelic representation of the Lord himself. The angel of the Lord has already appeared in Genesis Uh, He appeared revealing himself to Hagar in Genesis 16 and Abraham in Genesis 22. And from what we see there and what we see here, the angel of the Lord is God. It is what theologians like to call a theophany or a visible manifestation of God. You see here in our passage itself, the angel of the Lord doesn't speak for God. He doesn't say, thus saith the Lord. He doesn't say that. He speaks as God. He says, I say to you, I am the God of your father and of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, why does God manifest himself this way? I think it's because God cannot be perceived directly by human senses. In fact, the Bible says no one can see him and live. You cannot take in the fullness of God. And so in a token of condescension, he manifests himself in a way that doesn't completely overwhelm a person. But not only does God manifest himself as a holy angel, but with a burning bush. There is this bush that burns, but is never consumed. Have you ever just kind of paused? I mean, this is kind of like what we see in like the picture books, the children's picture books, and we just kind of take it for granted. But have you ever paused to think, why is God showing up the way he is? Now, we probably can think of a number of reasons, but clearly the fire, what, is not dependent on the bush. It doesn't need fuel to keep going. The fire, representing God, is self-sufficient, self-existent. The fire simply is. God needs nothing and is inexhaustible. And as fire... He is holy. He is purifying. He is consuming. He can be threatening if not treated with respect. He can destroy like fire or he can provide like fire. This is why God manifests himself as fire. In Genesis 15, he is this smoking fire, right? And flaming torch when he covenants with Abraham. Later in Exodus, he's this pillar of fire that leads Israel in the night. In Exodus 19, he is the fire that descends on Mount Sinai. In Hebrews, he is the consuming fire. And in Revelation, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Here's the sign and signal of the holy presence of God. And so when Moses turns to walk towards the bush, God calls out to him saying, Moses, Moses, he repeats the name in this personal urgency and warns, do not come near. Take off your sandals. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It is holy ground. God isn't creating some kind of 
name for Christian coffee shop. He isn't telling Moses to take off his sandals because keep the carpet clean. He's saying, I am holy. I am holy, and you do not come into my presence just willy-nilly. I am separate. I am distinct. I am transcendent. You do not come any which way into my presence. And Moses, in verse 6, rightly hides his face and was afraid to look at God, just like the six-winged cherubim, two wings to what? Cover their eyes. Two wings to what? Cover their feet. Moses understood who he was, sinful man, and who God is, holy other. Have you ever trembled to approach God? Do you ever have a sense of your unworthiness of him? And of the danger that his holiness possesses to your sinfulness? Have you ever feared to look God in the face? You know, the church, it can be a place of community and welcome and hospitality, but we should not get it twisted because if you have never met God with reverential fear, if the only way that you approach God is boldness and this boisterous whatever approach, then is it really the God that Moses met that you're worshiping? But notice God doesn't say, Moses, Moses, go away. He doesn't say that. He says, take your sandals off. Despite God's holiness and transcendence, God doesn't tell Moses to leave, but there are conditions to entering into his holy presence. And I think we can take comfort and assurance in that God's presence is at once holy and inviting. Though he is holy, he takes the initiative to call out to Moses. Though he cannot be seen, he condescends to a manifestation of angel and fire. God in his holiness longs to draw near to his people. And he will always act in absolute moral purity. He is the very source and standard of goodness. And that goodness does not change because God does not change. He is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, a long history of unchanging covenantal holiness. And all that holiness, all of that goodness and excellence is directed to his people for his own glory forever. I think that's a great comfort for, for God's people, a reason to trust him. He's good. And he will use all his goodness. He's always good. He's trustworthy and true. Second, we can trust God for he is compassionate. Look at verse 7. He summarizes the plight of, or in verse 7 it summarizes the plight of the Israelites with four terms. Affliction, cry, taskmasters, sufferings. But God announces his compassion and says, I have seen, I have heard, I know. That phrase, I have surely seen in the Hebrew, connotes the sense, I have carefully watched over. 
I have paid very close attention to. God indicates the intensity of his watchfulness over the misery of Israel. And what does God say? Does he say, I have seen the afflictions of Israel? No, he does not say that. He says, I have seen the afflictions of what? What does it say? My people. My people. That's what he says. You cannot help but see God's tender regard for his people. When God's people suffer, they sometimes wonder whether God even cares. But the story of Israel in Egypt is a dramatic example of what is always the case, and that is God knows exactly what his people are going through, always. He is well aware of what is happening to us. He really knows, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 63, 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. There's a story from the American Civil War when Abraham Lincoln was visiting the barracks of the wounded, and in front of him was this woman who was going around passing out tracts to people, Christian tracts to the wounded soldiers. And one of the soldiers received his tract. He read it, and he started laughing hysterically. And Abraham Lincoln comes up to him and says, hey, you know, like, everything okay? What's going on? And the soldier said, she gave me a tract about the sin of dancing, and both my legs were shot off. She didn't take time to enter into his circumstances or condition, what he was feeling or facing, not even his name, but not so with God. God is not cool. He is not a detached deity. He sees our suffering, and he cares about it. He is full of pity and compassion for the love for the people he loves. And look at verse 8. He says, I have come down. He stoops down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians, to fulfill his promises, to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey, a good place, a broad place, a land of the ites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression from which the Egyptians oppressed them. God comes down. Now, this is merely a metaphor, but it is a powerful one, isn't it? Because God is everywhere. It means that God is getting involved in a new way. He is stepping onto the stage. Pharaoh will not have to reckon with Moses. He will have to reckon with the God of the universe. And he will deliver them according to his promises, into the land of these ites. Now, we might wonder about the timing of God. We might wonder, God, if you're willing to help now, why didn't you help earlier? We're not privy to know exactly why. We are not privy to know all of the reasons why. Perhaps he was waiting for all the prayers of the people to accumulate to the right portion? You certainly could say that it was because of the sins of the Amorites. Uh, turn back with me to Genesis chapter 15. And if you're in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, that's on page 11. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Genesis 15, 13. This is right after God covenants with Abraham, and God says, Know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So this is a prophecy about their time in Egypt. 
Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Verse 16, and they shall come back here. God is referring now to the land of Canaan. In the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Isn't that fascinating? The Lord says, I'm not ready to give you the promised land because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Lord was waiting, and part of what he was waiting for all this time was for the sins of the people to accumulate so that God would be utterly holy and just in wiping them out. You see, God's timing is rarely our timing, and we don't know the millions of things that God is doing in His sovereignty, in His holiness. And we might wonder, why are you making me wait, Lord? And faith, at least in part, is the ability to say, if I could see what God sees, and hear what God hears, and know what God knows, I would say he's doing it right. It takes faith to believe that because our vision is limited, our hearing is limited, our knowledge is limited. Brothers and sisters, never think that God has forgotten about you. If you're in Christ, the only thing he has forgotten are your sins. One of the most helpful things about being a parent is that it gives me sometimes a little bit of a glimpse into what God must think about us when we don't trust his compassion toward us. Uh, Just the other day, my wife Shirley was uh, told one of my children, who will not be named, I'm going out to pick up your brother and sister from school. And she was sitting there in her chair eating her snack all of a sudden it was like the blood drained from her face because mama was going to leave. And Shirley steps out for about five minutes and she and this daughter of mine felt like, I'm never going to see her again. I've been totally abandoned. I will have to raise myself in this house with this man. And I have to reassure her, don't worry, mommy will be right back. It's only for a few minutes. She knows what she's doing. She has not forgotten you. How much more our God, who can be with us at all times, through the spirit of Christ and says to us in all places, I've never left you. I will never forsake you. Even when I seem absent, I am with you. In the fullness of time, God came down to deliver us, didn't he? Let us not forget that. In the fullness of time, he came down to deliver us. He stooped to save, not to bring us out of Egypt, but to save us from our slavery to sin. And he didn't show up as an angel or as a burning bush. He became man and pitched his tent with us. He was tempted, betrayed, abused, and abandoned. He entered into the same arena of conditions we face, and he laid down his life that we might take Hold of that which is truly life. Beloved, we can trust God for he is holy and we can trust God because he is compassionate 
And we can trust God because he is all sufficient. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 3. In verse 10, God's conversation with Moses takes kind of a surprising turn. God has spoken of his plan of redemption. And what does he say to Moses? He says, come, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Here's his call upon Moses, his commission to Moses. You, you're going to do it. And Moses, what's his response? He's like, excuse me. He says, who am I? Now, this isn't like some humility happening here, maybe a misplaced humility, but he's not just trying to be polite. I mean, Moses, he's 80 years old. He's washed up. His strength is gone. His popularity is gone. He doesn't have plans. He doesn't have an army. He doesn't have weapons. 40 years ago when he was in his prime, 40 years is a prime, by the way, and so 40 years when he was in his prime, when he was physically strong, politically powerful, he would have said, yes, Lord, that's right, I'm ready. I got this. But now he's washed up. He, he no longer eagerly puts himself there, out there to be the deliverer of God's people like he did 40 years ago. And perhaps he's still haunted by all his failures in the past, but he's aware very acutely of his own inadequacy. But here we encounter one of the seeming paradoxes of God's sovereign grace. God uses human beings, sinful human beings, to carry out his saving purposes. And we see God's response. He says, but I will be with you. And then God says, I'm going to give you a sign, Moses. Out of this whole winding detour out of Egypt, Moses will know God's word will come true when he and all his people return back to this mountain and worship God. It's a future sign. Sinai is not actually a direct path out of Egypt and into Canaan. It's not. It's a big detour. But Moses would know everything is going according to plan if they're headed in that direction. But the sign will only appear after Moses steps out in obedience. Most of us are probably familiar with the classic breakup line, it's not you, it's me. Uh, You say that when you're trying not to hurt the other person's feelings and the other person, you know, on the receiving end often doubts if they're telling the truth and then it's not really a satisfying kind of uh, sentence, explanation. Well, here what we have before us is a divine DTR. This is a divine version of it's not you, it's me. But this one is both true and satisfying. God's response to Moses' inadequacy is not to hype him up. He's not going to say, hey, you know, Moses, you know, you have all the makings of of a leader. You're an ESTP, you know. Your your Enneagram is is a three or whatever, you know. Don't forget about your upbringing in Egypt. You have that PhD degree. You know that Pharaoh degree. You're trained in military strategy. You've done your your residency here at, uh, as a shepherd here in Midian. No, he doesn't say any of that. He says, it's not you, it's me. He doesn't deny Moses' feelings because Moses is old and weak and scared. But God says, that's perfect. 
Because the real question is not who Moses is, but who God is. God says, I will be with you. And so this exodus that is about to happen is not based on your competence, but my presence. Some of you might know children who have trouble sleeping at night because they're afraid of, I don't know, these imaginary monsters that come out in the night. And a father can plead, plead with their children saying, there's no such thing as these monsters. But it doesn't make a difference. And some of you dads know that the only thing that helps them is for you to stand at the foot of the bed and just say something crazy like, if those monsters are going to come out, they have to get through me. And then the child goes to bed and goes to sleep. For the child, there's no sense in denying his or her fear. It had to be replaced with trust in the father. So rather than explain away his apprehensions, God says, for Pharaoh to get to you, he'll have to get through me. I'm calling you, but I will be with you. That is his call to Moses. And this morning, I cannot possibly know all the things that God has called you to in this life, your vocation, your family life, or whatever difficulties or sufferings you may be going through. But I do know this, that if you're here today and you are not a Christian, God is calling you to one thing. He is calling you into his kingdom. That is what he is doing right now. Right now, he's calling you into his kingdom. This holy God, this compassionate God, sends his own son so that whoever repents of their sins and places their trust in him will not perish but have eternal life. You might think that, oh, I need to clean myself up. I need to get right before God before I can be saved. You might think God will never want me, but that's not it. It's not about you. God provides everything you need for your salvation. His son, his death, his, the death of Christ, he gives you his righteousness, not your own. That's how you can be saved. All God asks is that you respond in faith and look to Christ. You can trust him for your salvation. And church, it is unavoidable from this passage to see that God is calling you as well. Not to necessarily calling you into the kingdom, but to be about kingdom service. You don't need a burning bush to tell you what to do. You have something far more sure. You have the complete canon of holy scriptures. There are enough things right in here that he's calling you, and it is written all over this book. And when we look at the concrete tasks that God has called us to, evangelism, our work, caring for our family or our marriage, loving our church members, we feel inadequate. We read our church covenant, and we feel inadequate, And it's true, we are. But God is with you. He abides with you. And whether you're a pastor or a programmer or a bridge builder or a homemaker, God has work for you to do. And do you think that it is enough that God is at your side? Since God is for you, who or what can be against you? 
And you might think, well, okay, there's a lot of people that can be against me, and let me start naming them. My boss, my parents, my children, my government, my own body betrays me. But the point is no one and nothing can ultimately succeed against you apart from the will of God. Our mission as a church, as we heard even last week, is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that Jesus has commanded us. And you hear that, just those verses, and you say, impossible. But beloved, what does Jesus say to us? Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Whatever call God has upon your life, let us keep trusting our holy, compassionate, and all-sufficient God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you once again that you have spoken to us not, not in, with these extraordinary signs, but you have spoken to us in your word. And though we might feel like we are in a time of wilderness, in the wilderness, where we feel like, where we feel broken and just tending our sheep and going from day to day. Father, help us, give us faith to see that your ways are always perfect. And that you are compassionate and that you always do what's right. And help us when we open this completed word and we look upon all these things that you have called us to that we would take great comfort that you equip with you equip us with everything we need to live a life that pleases you and is for our good we pray this in Jesus name amen